This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Farm. You know, that brings us, well, at least me, back to 1974. I think I was 10 years old. Stop doing the math. I'm 55. And Paul McCartney and Wings had already released the album Band on the Run and needed to get back down to songwriting to churn out another hit record. But the story goes that McCartney, his wife Linda, and the band needed to get out of the spotlight to get it done. So they went down to Claude Curley Putman Jr.'s farm in Lebanon, Tennessee, to hang out for about six weeks to do it. And that experience inspired the hit song, Junior's Farm. Okay, so that's a long way of saying that being down on the farm can produce some amazing things. Like the kid who grew up on a farm in Pennsylvania, landed at Stanford Engineering School, and then rose up the Silicon Valley ranks to become, you ready? The number one best CEO in America, as ranked by Glassdoor. He's Pat Gelsinger, CEO of VMware, and he's with me today. Thanks so much for joining us on Everyone Talks to Liz, Pat. Hey, thanks, Liz, and uh, thank you for that kind introduction. A pleasure to be on your show today. You know Junior's Farm, right? You know that song. Oh, yeah, yeah. That was great when I was a kid. (laughs) (laughs) So you're around my age. Okay. Well, congratulations. When you found out, that's what I want to know right off the bat. When you found out you were the number one ranked best CEO of 2019 from Glassdoor, what, what went through your head? What was your gut reaction? Well, the first reaction is you're just honored. It's like, wow, that's really good. Right. You know, so you really like it. Second reaction was, boy, this is good for VMware the brand of VMware, the recognition, you know, as a company, as an enterprise focused company, you know, it's not like we're, you know, this branded, you know, we're not Twitter, you know, you know, we're not Google or Facebook, right? You know, we're sort of inside of everything. But the third reaction was, I'm not worthy, right? You know, oh, there's, t- there's too many things that I should be doing yet to really be seen as number one. So I'd say those were my trio of reactions, but hey, this, this is good. Okay, so it wasn't, though, what happens to me almost every day where I finish a show and I think I'm such a fraud. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think VMware, you know, if you think about where we are today compared to where we were a couple of years ago, the company is doing well. Mm -hmm. Right. Second, we navigated through the Dell merger Mm -hmm. and Dell go public very successfully. And I think employees just really recognize that. And, uh, you know, our strategy, our Amazon and cloud strategy, everybody looks at us as, wow, you've gotten the company to a spot that not only is it doing well today, but it's uniquely positioned for many years to come. So I think overall, everybody looks at that and says, that's really good. And then you combine that with the great culture that we have, the values. You know, people say, boy, not only are we doing well, but this is a great company to work for. You know, this is good. Yeah, it seems like employees who get to weigh in on this absolutely love the experience. But here on Everyone Talks to Liz, we want to know about 
what got people to these heights and what challenges they overcame and what mountains they had to climb. And, uh, you know, your story jumped out at us because from farm boy to America's top CEO running this $17 billion company, I mean, that's a big leap. So I wanted to back up a little bit and start at the beginning and about you growing up in Pennsylvania. Tell us about your earliest memories of, of working on this farm and who owned it and what kind of farm it was. Sure. Well, it was actually, it's interesting because I worked on my uncle's farms and my neighbor's farms. My father was ninth of 10 kids and grandpa never helped him buy his own farm. He says, Hey, we got enough farms in the family. Just work with your siblings. So I was working with, you know, uncle Edwin and uncle Clarence and, you know, on cousin Larry's farm and on the neighbor's horse farm. So, you know, I was just a farm kid. And when growing up, I always thought I'd be a farmer. And then as I got into the teenage years, it's sort of like, hmm, what's a farmer without a farm? And I sort of stumbled into technology at that point. <laughs> but, you know, you will learn this work ethic on the farm that, hey, right, when I remember my first day at Intel, it's like, hmm, no horses kicking, no cows are biting, <laughs> right? I'm not covered in hay dirt. And they pay me overtime. Wow, this is like the best thing on earth, man. And, uh, you know, you could just work forever because, hey, on a farm kid, that's what you learn to do. So what I'll say, you know, I may not have been the smartest guy, but I sure knew how to outwork pretty much everybody else. I mean, back on the farm, was there a favorite chore? And by that by that uh, stretch, was there a, a hated chore? What exactly <laughs> were you doing? Well, the least favorite was uh, having to get up at uh, 3.30 to milk. Right. So if you had a day that you weren't helping to milk, that was a great day. You got to sleep in till five or five thirty. That was a lazy day. Uh, so that was always in the least. Right. You had a stack of hay on a hot day on a on a humid, hot day. That was like pretty bad. Right. You know, at the top of a hot tin roof, stack of hay. Sure. You know, and if you were out driving tractors in the field, that was like pretty good. Right. And, uh, you know, I rem remember just some days you'd be out there, you know, planting, disking, plowing, hauling uh, wagon loads of things as you're driving. And, you know, you can imagine as a 13, 14 year old kid driving a, a big old tractor, man, you thought you were the king of the earth. Right. Oh. It was really like, uh, you know, just as good as it gets. I remember when I went to get my driver's license at 15 and a half in Pennsylvania, I had already been driving for almost four years. So it's <laughs> like, wow, this is easy. <laughs> yeah. You know, my dad um, was about 13 and he was driving a truck for his dad who had a, a scrap metal yard about the size of a postage stamp in Canada. But boy, times have really changed. I mean, to be that young and doing very hard manual labor, um, it just must be what a difference. But that that leads me to wonder, when did you realize you had a penchant for engineering and technology? Well, I accidentally, uh, you know, you're sort of stumbling around. I know I'm not going to be a farmer because dad doesn't have a farm. If he had a farm, I'd be farm boy in Pennsylvania today. I'm number one son. I would have inherited the farm and done it. And I sort of stumbled into electronics. I tried it out, liked electronics. And then I accidentally took a scholarship exam uh, in my junior year. Wait, and, wait. how uh, do you accidentally take an exam? <laughs> well, it turns out that you were only supposed to take it in your senior year. Ah. And they sort of accidentally let me take it, not realizing that limitation. And I won. <gasps> so I won a, a two-year associate's degree at Lincoln Technical Institute. So I ended up skipping my last year of high school to go to Lincoln Tech because they said, you have to take it this year, which turned out to be most fortuitous. Uh, so at 18 years old, I graduated from high school. Three months later, I graduated with my associate's degree. 
and Intel came recruiting. And uh, here I am, this 18-year-old kid, associate's degree, Intel offers to fly me to California. And I'm like, oh, they're crazy in California, earthquakes and cults and, you know, this is just nuts. But a free trip to California, I'm in. And uh, they offered me to right, a job and, you know, I promised my mom I would have never considered moving to the West Coast. They're just nuts out there. And uh, after Intel offered me the job and made it possible for me to work and go to school, next thing you know, 18-year-old Pat is showing up as the youngest technician at uh, Intel and working full-time, going to school full-time, and beginning an extraordinary, what I call, Cinderella career. Oh, wow. Uh, you know, as a Californian, I'm not offended because I know <laughs> everybody thought of us back then as the Moonies and craziness oh, yeah. out there. Yeah, of course. I mean, California. But uh, listen, I'd, I'd take it over any state. You know, it's my home state for sure. But who was running Intel at the time? Was that Craig Barrett or... Oh, that was way before Craig. In fact, uh, it was uh, when Gordon Moore was still CEO and Andy Grove was president and Robert Noyce was there. So, uh, you know, as I would say, you know, I learned at the feet of some of the giants of the uh, industry and, you know, early in my career, and I'll just just uh, another little Intel snippet, but uh, I was uh, in charge of taping out the 386, which is sort of assembling the database of a really important microprocessor for Intel. Mm -hmm. And I had to give an update on that process to the executive staff. So here's Gordon Moore, Moore's Law, uh, Robert Noyce, Nobel Prize winning integrated circuit inventor, Andy Grove, you know, the seminal Silicon Valley leader. And I basically chewed him out. I basically said, hey, fix my computers because they're not stable enough for me to get the 386 (laughs) out the door. And a couple of a couple of days later, my phone rings and it's. I pick it up, but I didn't want to be interrupted. I'm working like crazy, just like a good farm boy should. And I say, who is it? And the voice comes back, Andy. And I said, Andy, who? <laughs> and he says, Andy Grove. And I am now, I'm like, uh, you know, I'm so beside myself. I'm barely able to form a sentence. You know, the president of the company is calling uh, dweeb me. And uh, he starts shelling me with questions. And he says, uh, uh, and I just gave fumbling, lousy answers to it. He says, be in my office in a week with better answers. Oof. And when the president says, be in his office, what do you do? You either show up or leave the country, right? <laughs> and uh, uh, that began a mentoring relationship that lasted uh, literally till the time that Andy uh, passed away a couple of years ago. Oh, you're so lucky. I mean, what a story Andy Grove had. He'd be definitely... <laughs> The, the, the hero of mine, certainly considering, you know, came as an immigrant and really built what is the world's largest uh, semiconductor company. I, oh. It's fascinating. And, and I always joke that mentoring with Andy was like going to the dentist and not getting Novocaine. <laughs> <laughs> the genius is unbelievable. Well, when you were at Intel, you, you developed so much. You developed what Wi-Fi, USB technology. Right. Yeah. And, you know, many of, you know, I did uh, 15 different microprocessors that I was responsible for the server products, you know, and really you know, played a critical role in, uh, you know, decades of Intel's technology uh, leadership, 30, 30 years there. And, uh, you know, it was just fabulous. And I'll tell you, it was one of the hardest things I ever did when I left uh, Intel. But uh, EMC uh, sort of enticed me away mm-hmm. to uh, uh, join and uh, move back east to Boston and uh, become president and COO for uh, EMC. And a couple of uh, three years later, uh, it was an in the family move to come over and join uh, VMware. 
Well, yeah, that's the thing. I want our listeners to understand what what is sort of a Rube Goldberg slash Byzantine way that EMC and VMware, which was founded in 1998, are kind of intertwined. Uh, when you were CEO of EMC, the data storage giant, you know, you wanted to scoop up VMware. How, how did that relationship come about? Yeah, and uh, it was before my time, but uh, Joe Tucci, the CEO, yep. uh, he, uh, he had the foresight and uh, really saw this VMware. And in fact, I tried to acquire VMware when I was at Intel and, uh, you know, and I couldn't get it across the line. But Joe came in and got uh, uh, EMC to acquire VMware. And then uh, a couple of years later, he spun out and did the public offering for VMware, one of the most successful uh, public offerings in enterprise uh, software, but kept uh, 80% ownership of uh, VMware. And uh, boom, VMware just exploded. Well, right? I remember, the- I remember it it priced at what twenty nine bucks, and then it spiked to more than fifty dollars on the first day, and and it's just been an incredible ride. Yeah, and just extraordinarily successful. And uh, and then Diane Green transitioned to Paul Moritz, and you know that was rocky, a uh, founder CEO to a second uh, CEO. And then uh, the opportunity was for me to to move over from EMC to VMware. And uh, like I say, it was sort of an in the family uh, move and it was time to really scale the company. Right. And, uh, you know, take it to that next generation. And when I joined, it was, you know, a bit less than four billion in uh, revenue. This year we'll cross 10 billion uh, in revenue and really have taken Mm -hmm. the strategy to the next level. And, you know, as I like to say, I have 25,000 souls I'm responsible for at the company. And, you know, as we've grown it and really laid out a vision uh, into the future. So back to California, I came to this crazy Californian and uh, uh, culture and Silicon Valley and laying out a uh, you know strategy that positions VMware you know at the center of the cloud uh, era. Well, success though is not vertical ever, right? It doesn't just go straight up. Um, you know, I want to talk about the challenges, and what I do is I look at stock charts. Sometimes I am not a believer, Pat, that a stock price reflects what's going on at a company, good or bad, or the value of it. But in 2016, you know, the stock fell by half, what, to 44 bucks. What was going on then, and how did you overcome that? Yeah, it was a very tough period because uh, this was the Dell-EMC merger. Mm -hmm. And when that merger was announced... There was in a short period of time around the merger, there was, you know, are we going to merge with HP? Are we going to merge with Dell? Are we going to spin out VMware? Are we going to spin in VMware? Uh, Is Pat going to stay in charge? Are we going to fire Pat? Uh, Is uh, Pat going to run Dell? Is Pat going to be, you know, the public company CEO? All these rumors are swirling uh, as we saw the stock cut in half. It was a tough time. And, uh, you know, when you're reading, in fact, I was sitting next to Michael Dell at an event and one of the press rumors hit that I was about to be fired. (laughs) And I take my phone, right? I have this headline and I lean over to Michael, who's literally sitting right next to me. And I said, Michael, is there something I don't know? (laughs) And, uh, you know, and obviously Michael just laughs and we go on stage together. And I say, guess what I just got, right? You You know, so it was a very rough time. Uh, And I turned to the board of directors uh, at the time and I said, unless you fire me, I guarantee you I will get the company to the other side of this transition. 
And, you know, one of the things about leadership, uh, Liz, that I would say Mm -hmm. is, you know, you don't need a leader when everything's going well, right? You need leadership when things are not going well. Of course. And as I like to say, you know, you grow and learn in periods of change and challenge and failures when you grow and learn. And that's when leaders, you know, need to rise up. And uh, uh, as I would say, I committed myself. I said, I have to be encouraged so I can be an encouragement, right? You know, I, I needed my uh, countenance every day to be better. And people are looking at me and says, oh, Pat's happy. Mm, I think things suck. Uh, but he knows more than I do, so I must not know something, right? And, you know, it sort of lifts the spirit of the entire organization. And here we are. We went from, uh, you know, 43, 58 uh, share. We hit a high of 200 this year. So it's sort of like, wow, you know, that's a pretty dramatic uh, change in, you know, a little bit over two years. And uh, obviously we uh, not only made it through it, right, that rough period, but we not only survived, but now we're thriving. Yeah, piled it on. You know, how did you apply and how do you, if at all, apply the lessons, I guess, that you learned on a farm in Pennsylvania to this very uh, busy and brainiac type of life at VMware where you're constantly evolving and technology is moving at, at, as Bill Gates would say, at the speed of thought. Yeah. Yeah. And I'd say a couple of things. Uh, you know, one is that, you know, Hey, sometimes in the farm, Hey, you know, it doesn't rain. The crops don't do well, right? It's out of your hands, right? You know, the stock market is not responding to well, it's out of your hands, right? You know, you have to, you know, say I can take care of the things I can take care of and I'm going to do those really well. And I can't control all the externalities. And something else to say you learn in the farm, I certainly learned in the cyclicality of Intel, is, you know, if you do well, the things that you are responsible for, the company, right, it has in its own, right, you will come through those periods stronger and better. Well, right? seven years right? of feast, seven years of famine, and yeah. you don't always get the good times. Yep. But you make yourself stronger in the hard times that when the good times come, the environment's changing, you know, you're just thriving compared to your competitive competitors and compared to the alternatives uh, that you have. So that was certainly, you know, I'll say just one of the learnings. I'd say another aspect, uh, you know, from that period was, you know, clearly the hard work uh, aspect is just so f- fundamental. Hey, we are going to keep, you know, driving hard. And I always call it, like to refer to myself as the blue collar CEO, where I'm going to get my hands dirty. People know that I'm ready to you know, go to the lowest levels of detail. I'm ready to do a sales call. Uh, I'm ready to uh, get into hard trade offs inside of our teams. And in that, if I'm doing that, I require all of my executives to do that. Every one of the executive team, your executive sponsors, go see the customers, right? There is no engineering versus sales. Everybody's in sales. Yeah. Go you know, sell, support, and uh, be highly uh, committed to the success of the uh, customers uh, that we have. And that's one of our core values as a company that uh, mm-hmm. you know, all of us are going to do whatever it takes to make our customers successful under any circumstance and occasion. Well. You're doing something right because you got this glass door on her and, and the stock has done brilliantly. The company has only grown in market cap. Um, do you yell? Do you get mad? Of course I do. I'm a passionate guy. And, uh, you know, at the same time as a leader, and I, I remember one time I was in a meeting with Andy Grove and I saw him that he got super upset and I thought it was inappropriate. And another meeting where he didn't get upset. 
and I thought it was inappropriate. <laughs> <laughs> right. And in one of my mentoring sessions, you know, I asked, you know, I, I really, you know, compared and contrasted these to him. And, you know, the role of the CEO is really, I'll say, to often be the counterbalance to the prevailing winds. Right. If everybody's yeah. optimistic, you probably need to be pessimistic. If everybody's calm and something doesn't seem to be going right, then you probably need to get upset with it, huh. right? And, you know, maybe you lost a customer to a competitor, right? And it wasn't that big of a deal, but maybe you need to be really upset about it. Yeah, yeah. And, right, and I, you know, one of the, I'm writing a business book right now uh, that I'm working on. And one of the chapters I entitled, Never Waste a Good Crisis, where, you know, when things go bad, it's your opportunity as the CEO, as the leader to shape it to drive the agenda or to fix things well, right? And the next chapter in the book is, and every once in a while you need to create one, right? <laughs> yeah, where, you know, some little things going on, you need to make it a big thing yeah, because that gives you the opportunity to, I'll say, get upset, right? But you always want to be measured in your emotions because it's not like you want to get upset for the fun of it. You want to get upset to help drive the agenda and, you know, the organization sees the passion of the leaders and the CEO. And based on that passion, oh, this is the stuff I should get excited about. Right. Oh, this is the stuff I should get upset about, too. Lists are, though, I guess, a funny thing. You know, I, I look back on many of them in 2016. Business Insider did a coolest CEOs list and the number one spot went to. Elizabeth Holmes of the blood testing company Theranos, you know, <laughs> who was later charged with massive fraud for misleading partners and investors about its technology. She lied about revenue projections. The list goes on. Her case on wire fraud charges goes to trial next summer. What, as you're in the heart of Silicon Valley all these years, has been your secret to avoiding what can sort of be the vortex of Silicon Valley, where people get caught up in the glittery leaders or startups that quite frankly, later crash and burn. Yeah. You know, I'd give a couple of answers to that. One is my wife. And, uh, you know, I'll just say, you know, she's, uh, you know, a strong personality and keeps me uh, grounded. Uh, she doesn't like, I'll say, the glitter, the glamour of it all uh, is hers. So she helps ground me, right, my wife and uh, family. Um, you know, I, also the values, you know, we're deeply committed to a variety of charities and philanthropies that we uh, give to at scale. You know, one of the things you might have you know, seen or read, uh, Liz, is that uh, we committed ourselves to give an increasing portion of our salary many years ago. Amazing. And we're up almost 50 percent of our gross income goes to charities each year. Right. And, wow. you know, we're here for something much greater than ourselves. Uh and, you know, third is, you know, being very, very, uh, I'll say, transparent and accountable yeah. to the executives on your team, to the board of directors, to the audit uh, committee, where, hey, when stuff happens, you're accountable, right? If, if we fail, it's my fault. If we succeed, right, my company or other leaders have been the ones who deserve the uh, credit. And, you know, all of these it is so easy to get caught up oh, uh, in the glitter and success. Of course. You know, you have to be so much in the other direction that, you know, as you have more success, your humility must increase even more rapidly than your success does. Not enough humility or humble behavior, <laughs> either in New York or in the Valley sometimes. <laughs> you know, I want to talk about uh, staying on top of this ever-changing technology landscape, particularly with the crowd, cloud, which is what you guys do. 
Uh, what jumps out to me is the Capital One hack recently, where Capital yep. One Financial disclosed uh, in July that it suffered this massive data breach, which exposed the personal data of something like 106 million people in the U.S. and Canada who had applied for these credit cards. The cost of that hack could reach, what, 100 to 150 million. What kind of wake up call was that for cloud security overall? Yeah, and I'll say, you, and uh, if I draw a bigger picture, sure. Liz, um, the security spend in the technology industry has been the most rapidly increasing element of the overall IT spend. Hmm. So, you know, if you look back over time and compute costs, storage costs, device costs, right, you know, different software costs, the fastest growing line item is security. But the number and cost of breaches has grown even faster. Yeah. So I call this insanity. We're spending more and losing more. At the highest level, I say that we, the tech industry, have failed our customers in the area of security. The entire planet is putting more and more of their humanity onto the technology platforms that we deliver, yeah. their financial lives, their social lives, their healthcare, their right, uh, their community data, on and on and on, and we are failing our customers. So I have this very, very deep view that we, the tech industry, must do radically better in the area of security because it is too hard for our customers, the Capital Ones, yeah. to deliver a secure solution for their applications and their services. There will always be hackers. And, you know, I, I view most technology as neutral, can be used for good or bad, right? We have to be driving the uses of good. But this is an area that I think the world should not give us more of their lives unless we do a better job as a technology community in securing and guaranteeing and protecting the data, the applications, and the services and lives of those who are committed to our platforms. Well, Pat, I'm dying to know because I get really nervous about this stuff, too. Is there anything that you or your wife together where you say, absolutely do not put that anywhere on the web or in the cloud? Is there anything that you are always mindful to keep off? Well, I say we're pretty, you know, in some senses, we're the most technology centric family on the planet, right? You know, with a guy like me <laughs> using tech, but you know, I am very wary of the social platforms, right? And I'll just yeah. say, you know, my, my Facebook presence is like nothing. Yeah. I call it spy book. I just, am on it to, uh, right. You know, connect with kids and others. I need to be on it. So the social platforms in particular, I'd say, you know, we're pretty extremely removed from, um, uh, as a result, I think of some of these concerns. Yeah, I, 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 my show does Facebook, but I won't do it. I just, I just, well, I look at it differently. I want fewer people in my life, not more. Um, <laughs> I also think about, you're talking about how the technology world owes it to people who are putting everything up on there to give better security. You could also look at how hacks such as the Capital One incident may change the way people hire. Maybe maybe you hire. You know, the alleged perpetrator worked at Amazon Cloud Services mm -hmm. in the past. If I'm yeah. Amazon or Microsoft or you, and I'm thinking, do I need to treat employee candidates who would have involvement with or access to my cloud servers, do I need to treat them more like CIA operative job candidates who who would have 
top security clearance where you have to really do deep background stuff? Well, I always think, and you know, this has been the case for a while, that insiders have perpetrated some of the largest uh, security issues over a, over a long period of time. Mm-hmm. And that's why, uh, to me, a values-based organization is so critical. Because, you know, if you don't have people who, right, you know, match your corporate values, right, right and, and you build that value centricity into it, and, you know, hey, I'm not going to be ever subjecting our employees into a lie detector test to join the company. I mean, you know, nothing that extreme. But we do view them meeting our values and our code of conduct and our operating code, as we call it. That is an essential part of who we hire. And if they don't you know, live up to our integrity, our customer, our community focus, you know, they're not going to survive at uh, VMware. And so we treat that as an explicit portion of our hiring uh, process. And it has served us very well. And everybody will have a few bad apples, right? Your job is to go manage those. And that's part of management's responsibility to deal with those over time. But we set such a high bar on our ethics and values that, uh, you know, we feel much better than most in this regard. Every time I... I interview Warren Buffett, we, we talk about things like, wow, the Wells Fargo disaster and terrible, uh, you know, company ethics and all this. And he said, Liz, I have 300,000 employees at all of my multiple companies. At any given time, I guarantee you somebody's doing something they shouldn't do. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. It's, a, it's a matter of scale. I do want to bring up what VMware and you are at the forefront of right now, and that's machine learning or artificial intelligence. You recently tweeted a picture of, yes, you tweet, of ancient hieroglyphics, and you tweeted, quote, unexpected applications of AI are what makes this technology so powerful. With the help of machine learning, we could translate ancient texts that have yet to be deciphered. How, Pat, how can they do that? Well, the thing with machine learning, and I, I, you know, a couple of little tidbits, you know, one is when I was working on the 8046, I'm the chief architect of the 46 at Intel in 1986. And this is when the first breakthroughs in machine learning and AI were coming out. My marketing manager said, hey, we got to make the 46 a great AI chip in 1986. Mm. Right. What happened in 86 in the area of machine learning and AI? Nothing. (laughs) It's an overnight 30-year success, right? And it took 30 years of computing to get bigger, data to get bigger, the algorithms to refine. By the way, most fundamental technology breakthroughs need about 30 years of gestation time till they become big and huge. Really? Now, AI and machine learning is big and huge, right? After a 30-year gestation cycle. And the thing is, is that you can now pour so much data Right. You know, our cloud environments, the amount of you know, uh, vision and uh, uh, images and so on that we can pour through these machine learning algorithms now enables us to decipher things that were before undecipherable. Sure. Well, that's, that is things. Yeah, that's the benevolent side of A.I. Uh, would you acknowledge the side of A.I. self-replicating robots, maybe that some believe could be nefarious, you know, like 2001 Space Odyssey. Yeah, I think most of those things are just nonsensical, right? It's science fiction imagination gone wild, Mm -hmm. right? You know, and, you know, here we have, you know, highly curated data sets that are being poured into learning algorithms that become basically prediction machines, 
Uh, and it's not like they're self-replicating. It's not like they're creating more intelligence than you already have. You know, you know most of that stuff to me is just nonsensical, okay. right, as it's being uh, forecast today. And I really see that in many respects, there's so much yet to be researched, understood, learned about machine learning that's uh, you know, still a fairly infant technology uh, in that regard. And I think we should be doing as much as we can uh, for that uh, learning uh, process. And uh, uh, against it, uh, uh, some of the uh, naysayers uh, to me, hmm, I don't think the Chinese are slowing down. Right. They're trying to say, hey, where else can we do more breakthroughs? Where else can we have more hieroglyphic understandings that were not understandable before? And the way I think about it, Liz, you know, imagine that you showed up to your CPA, your, you know, your uh, personal finance for your taxes this year. And they said, you know, I've decided to stop using spreadsheets. I'm going to do it all manually. (laughs) Are you going to stick with them, Liz? No. Right. No. Right. You're going to say, hey, I expect you to use the best tools available to give me the best results. You know, that is the way AI and machine learning are going to be. They are going to enhance so many areas that make them better. And radiology today is uh, just a great example that, you know, radiology by specialist, right, versus radiology by machine learning and AI for tumor detection and cancer. Right. They're pretty comparable today. But every time a radiologist uses machine learning and AI, they get better results. Ah, so I'm only going, you know, I'm only going to radiologists who use machine learning and AI in the future because image detection is being enhanced by the most modern tools available. Right. And there's so many areas that are yet to be really leveraged of the new tools that are now becoming available to us. And in that sense, I say AI should not be regulated, right? AI cannot be regulated its software its ideas but it will be regulated in the industries where it gets used right whether that's self-driving cars you know whether that's in uh, security and detection whether that's in machine learning for radiology those areas the industries that it will get applied will be regulated so it shouldn't be it can't be but it will be and I believe that those normal social regulatory systems will and should be applied to what I think is one of the most exciting technology domains in the technology community writ large today. So Elon Musk has uh, too wild an imagination when he says that oh, yeah. they could take over the world. Yeah, he's out of control. This is just PR. This is just, uh, you know, uh, uh, PR mongering. <laughs> OK, so. um you mentioned China, and I wasn't going to go here because I, you know, I want to give you time to go off to your code world. But do, do you think China's beating us in the realm of AI? Uh, not necessarily. I know some have uh, uh, claimed that uh, to be the case. Um, I, you know, I think uh, the uh, technologists in America have tr- traditionally and consistently been at the lead of new algorithmic breakthroughs, software uh, breakthroughs. The thing that Chinese have going for them is data sets, right? They're just taking much more radical views of making data available and not all of that in the positive sense. Uh, and I think that's the area that you can point to today and says they're just getting bigger data sets, which help them to go faster in uh, this uh, area. So I'd say, hey, like many other technology areas, hmm, I expect this is going to be a good fun race to see which portion of the world does the best. But most of software and algorithms 
are nar- largely made available, and this goes back to things like Thomas Friedman, uh, Friedman and the World is Flat. Yep. You know, they're largely available across the world of the leading technologists. Technology is science, obviously, and scientists look at facts and numbers and outcomes. But, you know, you span quite the spectrum because on the one hand, you are this technologist with multiple. How many patents do you have? Uh, I'm uh, eight and I think I'm getting number nine here shortly. So, see, see, yeah, I was going to say, you know, when you want to flex your biceps in Silicon Valley, you just say how many patents you have. Um, <laughs> you've got that. And yet prayer is really important to you. On your Twitter feed, I saw you had posted this. Was it just yesterday? Quote, prayer is the time and space we reserve to commune with God. It usually involves more listening than asking. Mm-hmm. You're a very devout Christian. Um, how does that play into your world as the CEO and multimillionaire of VMware? Well, you know, I think about it in a couple of senses, uh, Liz. You know, one is I'm I'm here for a higher purpose than me, and right, you know, anytime, and it sort of goes back to earlier in our conversation, the humility aspects as well. Yeah. Hey, you know, I just you know I I don't believe my uh, presence here is an accident. Right. You know, I believe it's purposeful. And my job here is to use my role, the significant role of leadership as a CEO to do as much good. Right. As often for as many people as possible in the world. And, you know, for that, if I don't run a good business, I don't have the opportunity to have any of my twenty five thousand employees, you know, have great wealthy households. The business has to be great. That's job one. But as the business is great then it's how can I use that platform to do as much good for as many people as often as possible along the way. You know, also as a Christian, right, it is, you know, those periods of, okay, let's reset, you know, you're God, I'm not, right? And it just helps with your value perspective on a daily uh, basis and, you know, resetting, you know, who you are, why you're here. And then finally, you know, I, I run a very diverse Silicon Valley company, and it's very important for me to say, hey, it's not, you know, VMware is not a Christian company. It happens to be run by a Christian guy, but we're going to make it okay for you to be a Muslim, a Sikh, a, a Hindu, a a, 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 a Jewish, mm-hmm. a, you know, an atheist. You know, I want everybody to bring all of themselves here, right? Including their faith perspectives, including their sexual orientations, including you know their things that uh, you know their particular you know they they uh, want to take care of wounded warriors, they want to take care of wounded animals, they want to you know support. Different, you know, I have to make all of that okay, even as I have my own faith perspectives and my own philanthropic priorities, et cetera. And if I do a good job of that. People are more respectful of my Christian faith, not less, and I become more inquisitive of their perspectives, not less. It bothers me immensely lately what is happening in this country where there is a constant sort of our way or the highway. Listen, I was raised Jewish. Uh, My Mm. dad remembered real anti-Semitism growing up, Mm. and he watched the Holocaust unfold this is not something that we ever want to see repeated, even even in, in lesser terms, you know, and my heart squeezes lately about that. 
You know, I, yeah. I just, I just I, this comforts me to hear you speak like this. Well, thank you. And I, you know, I think it's just so important that, you know, and even in the political sense, we're losing the opportunity for, I'll say, frank, transparent, open dialogue. Right. And I want people to be able to approach me and say, hey, I'm mad at Christians because of this. Well, great. Let's talk about it. Right. I don't understand that about your. Well, great. Let's talk about it. Right. Just like they'd approach me and say, uh, here's my machine learning uh, breakthrough. And, you know, I want you to better support it in the products, Pat. I, I want all of those to be OK in this environment. Your life goals as you go forward. Uh, you've got a lot more years within you as the CEO, I would think and hope. Um, what is your goal right now? from both a professional and personal standpoint? Well, you know, a couple uh, aspects. You know, one is I, I made this statement many, many, many years ago that I wanted to work on a piece of technology that touched every human on the planet and every modality of life. Wow. Okay. Yeah. You know, so pretty audacious. Uh, but, you know, if you think about USB, Wi-Fi, cloud, mobility, hmm, you know, You're there. we're getting there. Yeah. You can <laughs> quit now, Pat. Enjoy the rest of your life. <laughs> and wait and, a minute, by the way, Sorry to interrupt, but USB ports, does it annoy you? Because it sure annoys me that Apple's newer laptops do not have USB ports. I'm totally annoyed. <laughs> well, <laughs> anyway, <laughs> the, uh, uh, you know, I'll just say, you know, some of the technologies over time, you know, they, they have life cycles yeah, associated I know. with them as you move on. But, you know, I mean, I, I've been pretty thrilled and, you know, Wi-Fi, hey, at some point that'll get replaced as well. But, you know, to have sort of ushered in connectivity right, in the world, that's pretty exciting. To have helped create the PC, that's pretty exciting. But now it's much more about, you know, the, you know, the cloud, mobility, AI, IoT, blockchain, these kind of things that I think just keep moving things forward, but also to be what I call tech as a force for good. Right. You know, how can we you know, take technology and the entire technology industry? And I'm fearful of some of the tech lash, right, kind of things that are going on, because I think, you know, we all we have this gem in the United States today where, you know, we are and here in Silicon Valley in particular, we are the envy of the planet. Right. There is no place on planet Earth that doesn't want to be us. And how do we keep making that force, right, of technology bring more good for more people more often than uh, we do today? And to me, that becomes this higher purpose that I think, you know, a leader like myself in technology, yeah, I got a lot of work to do here. And, you know, and the security topic we touched on, uh, you know, some of the AI uh, negatives, but, you know, really making technology and the technology industry believe deeply that it's their opportunity, if not obligation, to make tech as a force for good. I, I'm betting on you, Pat. And, and as the poet Robert Browning would say, uh, but a man's reach should exceed his grasp, or what's a heaven for? So keep reaching, keep grasping, and thank you so much for telling us your amazing story. Well, thank you so much, Liz. This was a lot of fun. Farm boy, <laughs> like Little House on the Prairie. Oh, my gosh. To the top CEO. Imagine that. Don't imagine it. Do it. He did it. That's our focus here at Everyone Talks to Liz. And by the way, once you get the money from being the CEO or whatever it is you're doing, watch my show Monday through Friday on the Fox Business Network, The Claim and Countdown, 3 p.m. Eastern. It's the most exciting and most important final hour of trade. We'll see you then and hope you'll listen once again to Everyone Talks to Liz. Have a great day. 
I'm Guy Benson. Join me weekdays at 3 p.m. Eastern as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and guests. Listen live on the Fox News app or get the free podcast at GuyBensonShow.com.